If you're still on the hunt for a sports book to call home, bet the nonstop action of March Madness with my bookie. Enter bracket contests for a chance to take home prizes of up to $25,000 or pick from a huge selection of straight bets, props, and odds boosts. Whatever your style, MyBookie makes it easy to play your way and get paid. Sign up now and take advantage of our generous welcome offer to score a massive first deposit bonus of up to $1,000. All you have to do is claim promo code MADNESS50. But the fun doesn't stop there. Get up to the minute odds, free bets, and expert predictions to help you decide who to put your money on. The best part about MyBookie? You can bet on anything, anytime, from anywhere. Use promo code MADNESS50, that's MADNESS50, to secure your limited-time welcome bonus today. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler, and I am flying solo on today's show. Curtis will be back with me later this week for the Mailbag Show, but today I've got you guys covered with the Auburn edition of our annual scouting the enemy series i've had to push this show back a couple of weeks i know i've teased this a couple different times but i've had to push it back a couple of of weeks in a row in order to cover some of the breaking news we've had whether it's the big 10 moving their schedule around whether it was jt daniels eligibility and also had to fit in brett siancia from pick six previews last week want to make sure get that interview in so had to move around a couple different times but it is happening today and given that this is Always one of the premier games on the schedule, and to also kind of make up for having to push this back a couple times and teasing you guys, I put a lot of work into this one to get you guys ready for this particular matchup. And if you haven't listened to one of these episodes before, if you're new to the show, this is going to be a deep dive. We've done this every year that we've had this podcast running, I think, what, six years now? I think we're going to our sixth or seventh year, one of those two. And, and we're talking everything, man. We're talking schemes, personnel, trends, everything to try to give you guys an idea of how we're going to match up with the Tigers when and or if we do play them this season. So we'll get to that here in just a quick second. First, though, I do want to quickly, again, thank everyone who has rated and reviewed the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Those five-star reviews, man, they are a huge help for us. We really appreciate it. And a big shout-out this week to Dog Axe for taking a little extra time out of his day to write us our most recent review, a very nice review. We appreciate that, man. And if you guys don't know Dog Axe, if you're on Twitter in the Georgia sphere of influence, you you know this guy. But if not, he fights the good fight for us on the mean streets of Twitter. Gotta love him for that. And give him a follow if you don't already follow him. He does a really good job representing the G out there in the world of social media. So, again, thanks to everyone who has helped us with the ratings and reviews. If you haven't had a chance to do it yet, no big deal. If you get a free second and you enjoy the show, it would really help us out a lot if you did give us one of those ratings and or reviews. But, all right, let's go ahead and talk Auburn football. we got a lot to get to today. Like I told you guys, I went extra deep on this one. And when you listen to people talk about the Auburn football program these days, one of the words that you hear thrown around, and maybe it's just me, but at least me, one of the words that I hear thrown around a lot, maybe more than any other word when you talk about Auburn, is, is inconsistent, right? You hear that a lot, don't you? Since the SEC expanded to 14 teams back in 2012, I think it was, yeah, 2012, Auburn's schedule, it evolved to include either both Georgia and Bama on the road or Georgia and Bama at home to close the season, That's been well documented. And the narrative has been since that happened that in even years, 
when they end the season with road trips to Athens and Tuscaloosa like they were supposed to do this year before we decided to help them out and moved our game with them, our annual rivalry game from November all the way up into early October. The, the narrative is when that happens, when they play Georgia and Alabama back-to-back on the road late in the season, well, those years they take a step back and Gus Malzahn finds himself on the hot seat. But then in the odd years, when they get the, the dogs and the tide both at home late in the year, they cycle back up and Malzahn saves his job for another year and life is pretty and then you rinse, wash, repeat the whole nine yards. But I don't really see it that way. I don't know how accurate that narrative really is because I think when you look at it really closely and you actually pull back the layers, I actually think this Auburn football program has been remarkably consistent in maintaining their position as a good, a good, but really second-tier SEC program under Gus Malzahn. Like, the future looked bright enough. I know people that, that hear me say Auburn's a second-tier SEC program, they're like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, what are you talking about? But just hear me out here. Yes, the, the future looked really bright after Malzahn managed to somehow take them to the final BCS title game in 2013. It was the very last BCS title game against Florida State. He took them there. He took them there in year one. Year one, the job as the head coach. And the future looked incredibly bright. And he's kind of basically lived off of that one year. He really has. But since that initial season, Malzahn's Auburn teams, get this, guys. I, I know, again, you might not think this is the case, but it is. Since that initial 2013 season, since when he took over, Gus Malzahn's teams have never lost fewer than four games in a season. Never. In fact, in five of the six seasons since that 2013 season, Auburn has lost four or five games. And the other season, they lost six games. So this notion that Auburn has been like a yo-yo of sorts, I guess, under Malzahn, you know, cycling up one year and then cycling down the next, that just isn't really borne out in the facts. I think that's more of, of one of those media-created narratives that you see with college football. I, I, I really believe that's what it is. The fact is, when you really look at the numbers, they have been consistently pretty good. That's kind of what they've been. They are 28-23 and 23 overall in the SEC since, again, that first Malzahn season in 2013. That, and that was a really good season. I'm giving credit for that. But since then, 28-23 and 23 in the SEC. And, and they beat most of the teams they should beat. They usually beat Mississippi State. They usually beat Ole Miss. They beat those. They usually beat Arkansas. They beat those teams. But they struggle against the elite programs. They've gone 5-14 against Georgia, LSU, and Alabama combined since, again, that first year that Malazan took over. But they are 23-9 against everyone else in the league. Now, sure, they've famously beaten Bama a few times in the past couple years. And that's honestly what saved his job. You know, he, for a while, Malzahn was living off that, that trip to the BCS title game in 2013 in, in year one, but he was going to get fired, and then he looks up and beats Bama a couple times, and now he's off the hot seat again, right? So th- that's happened a couple times, but those wins are clearly the exception when you're talking about Malzahn versus Bama or Malzahn versus other elite programs in the league. And, and the win last year against Alabama, that was let, let's put that in context. I'm, a, I'm big on context. You guys know that. That was against a two-a-list Bama team and aided by some very, very shoddy officiating chemo. So when I, when I went back and watched that game again in preparation for this show, like I was just like appalled at some of the calls. Like, and the two big ones, obviously, uh, at, at the end of each half, were just flat-out blown calls. They were just 
abysmally blown calls. And that, I mean, Bama did a lot of bad things for themselves, but they certainly, certainly got killed by officiating in that game. So, yeah, look, Auburn's a good program. I'm not here to say Auburn's terrible. They're not. They're a good program. But they're not a big boy program. At least they haven't been a big boy program over the past six seasons. That's kind of just what they've been. They've been a good program, but not an elite program. It doesn't mean they haven't ever been elite, and it doesn't mean that they can't be more than that again, that they can't be elite again. It doesn't mean that they can't do that again. It's just, again, simply what they have been under Gus Malzahn since that 2013 season. But with the 2020 season hopefully staring us in the face here, what I am focused on right now is whether or not this is the year all that changes. The past can be instructive and you got to look there. That's where you got to start. But I also want to look ahead here. I want to look forward. Is this the year that changes? Is this the year that Malazan manages to elevate this program to something more than just an above average SEC team? So let's explore that. Let's explore that starting with their offense because when you talk Auburn and Gus Malzahn, it, it all centers around the offense, right? And we've heard this story before, guys. We've heard this before. So I'm going to say that first before I get into the offensive coordinator change here. We've heard this story before, but Malzahn is allegedly handing over the keys to the offense to new offensive coordinator Chad Morris. He's throwing up his hands. He's advocating all responsibility for the offense. So the story goes. But that was also, let's not forget, originally supposed to be the case with his protege, Rhett Lashley, years ago. But that never happened. Lashley got banished to Connecticut. But now that he's gotten himself free from Gus Malzahn's thumb, because if I remember correctly, Lashley was one of Malzahn's quarterbacks uh, in high school. I think it was in Springdale, Arkansas back in the day. And he gets him a coaching job, and he was offensive coordinator. And so he was supposed to be that, that next guy, right? He's Malzahn's protege, but that never really happened. Malzahn blamed all the issues on him, obviously. So he goes to UConn, but now he's actually worked himself all the way back up to being a Power 5 coordinator. He's the new offensive coordinator at Miami this year. So it was supposed to be him, but that didn't really work out. And then he brings in, really he was largely forced to bring in Chip Lindsey as the offensive coordinator a couple years back. And, and he and the Auburn fan base, when, when that hire was made, they swore up and down that Malzahn was fully handing over the offense to Lindsey. And, and, and to, to prove that, let me give you some quotes here. Upon hiring Lindsey, Malzahn himself said, in reference to his clipboard of plays, you know, that he carried around the sidelines, he said, quote, well, I'm not going to carry that anymore. I retired it officially. So that kind of tells you where I'm at, how much confidence I have in this guy right here obviously referring to, to Chip Lindsley. And he also said, quote, Chip's going to call the plays. This is going to be Chip's offense. This is going to be his responsibility. Those are words that came out of Gus Malzahn's mouth. Uh, but what happened? Oh yeah, Malzahn's seat got hot in 2018 with a 7-5 regular season. And what was his solution? Oh yeah, it was to take back the play calling duties for that 2018 Music City Bowl against Purdue. And that in that game... They put up 63 points on Purdue. And of course, that gave old Gus all the leverage he needed to take back the play call and do these full time in 2019. What he basically was able to do is say, oh, look, yeah, I'm not the problem. I'm not the one you should fire. We got to get, get rid of Chip Lindsey. If, if I'm calling plays, we're going to put up 60 plus points a game. But predictably, in 2019, when he takes over the play call and duties full time again, it was yet another underwhelming season for the Auburn offense. They finished 64th national total offense. And guys, I know this might be tough, but believe it or not, as bad as our offense was last season, it was still 
actually statistically better than Auburn's offense in virtually every single statistical category. We're talking total yards, yards per play, efficiency, you name it, we were better. Let that one sink in, right? So of course, with another down year, when they they had their hopes so high on what they could be with Gus Malzahn finally taking the play calling duties back over again, even though they previously forced him to hand the job over to a new offensive coordinator, which of course doesn't make any sense at all. But that got the Auburn fan base, and more importantly, their boosters all fired up all over again about changing their offense yet again. So here we are. Enter Chad Morris, fresh off maybe the single most disastrous head coaching tenure in SEC history. And, and I mean that, guys. I know that's that sounds hyperbolic, but I think you can make that argument. I mean, he went 4-20 overall and 0-16 in the SEC over the course of just a little under two years. He got fired uh, before the end of his second year on the job. And now, with Morris, the Auburn faithful, they super triple pinky swear that it's for real this time, right? It's for real. But, you know, pardon me if I just don't quite buy that based off what I've seen in the past with Gus Malzahn and when things get hairy, him using his offensive coordinator that's calling plays as kind of like his whipping boy. So I guess, like, let's pretend it's going to be the case though this year, at least for this year. Let's pretend that Malzahn is actually going to give the keys over to Chad Morris. Let's just pretend, right? And if they start to go off the tracks at some point this year, I again, I fully expect Malzahn to take the reins back. I do. But for the purposes of this podcast, let's live in this world where this is Chad Morris's offense. So what does that mean for this Auburn offense in 2020? And I'm actually really intrigued by this. I don't have a firm answer for you. I think it's hard to know. It's kind of like the situation we find ourselves in with Todd Mucken coming in. Actually, I think there's more uncertainty with Chad Morris coming into Auburn than there is with Munkin coming in to Athens. And I'll explain why I think that here as we go through it. But prior to his disastrous stint at Arkansas, and it was disastrous, Morris had a really good track record as an offensive mind. He started, he was like Malzahn. He started in high school football. He was in Texas. Malzahn was in Arkansas. They actually uh, met each other while they were coaching in high school, I think Morris visited with Malzahn to learn kind of the spread up-tempo system, and they kind of veered off in different directions, but that's kind of where they got this relationship kick-started. And uh, let's not forget, Chad Morris was the offensive coordinator that originally got that Clemson train rolling with Taj Boyd at quarterback, if you think back a couple years. He was the one also who recruited and coached Deshaun Watson as a freshman before he moved on to take the head coach job at SMU that he eventually parlayed into that Arkansas job, which he failed miserably at. But if you look at what he did at Clemson, like he, this guy has a really good track record everywhere he's been other than Arkansas as an offensive play caller. Clemson's offense finished 88th nationally, averaging only 334 yards a game the year before Morris took over. And then the very next year, Morris elevated them to 26th nationally and 440 yards a game. In year two, he got them all the way inside the top 10 nationally and at 512 yards per game. Guys, that's uh, an increase of 178 yards per game offensively within two seasons with Chad Morris getting that job at Clemson. That, that's really what started to change the game for Clemson. Remember, they were known for Clemsoning, right? Like they weren't what they are now. And it wasn't only him, but obviously he had a huge role in elevating that Clemson program. 
Now, at SMU, his offenses never quite reached the heights of his Clemson offenses, as you might expect, because he didn't have the players that he had at Clemson. You don't have Taj Boyd and Deshaun Watson and Sammy Watkins and all those guys. You don't have those guys. But the upward trajectory was still very similar, if not actually even more stark than it was during his time at Clemson. When he got the job, uh, they were 127th nationally at SMU, averaging only 269 yards a game in the year prior to Morris getting that head coaching job. And then immediately, again, immediately, he elevated them to at least middle of the pack at 76 nationally and 382 yards a game. That's over 100 yards per game improvement in, in year one. And then by his final season at SMU, he had them all the way inside the top 15 nationally. So this guy has a really, really strong track record. Arkansas was clearly a different story, but there's some context there. He was preceded by Brett Bielema, who had spent years, you guys know what the offenses at Arkansas were like under Bielema with Sam Pittman as the offensive line coach. They spent years building the Arkansas offense into, I guess what I would call the Southern version of Wisconsin that just tried to ground and pound teams into submission. And it worked for a while, but you know, eventually it kind of petered out. They had big lumbering linemen, powerful running backs, and and for the most part, average skill talent. I I see what they were trying to do. Uh, Arkansas, when they hired Morris, I see what they were trying to do in going from one extreme that they didn't think was working anymore to the opposite extreme. But when the personnel and scheme don't mesh to that degree, look guys, it just takes time. It, It wasn't quite as much of a rebuild as say like Georgia Tech trying to transition from years and years, a decade or so of running the triple option to a modern spread offense, but it's it's still the same idea. It's the same concept. And Arkansas only gave him two years. In, in fairness to the Arkansas brass, they were two terrible years. And they, I mean, they were ranked in the 100s in total offense both years. They went 0-16 in the SEC. That's essentially unforgivable. You just can't do that. Like, I don't even know if you can do that if you try. Like, I don't know how you do that. But still, the personnel was not a fit. And where I think Morris went wrong is he didn't really alter his system all that much, really at all, to fit that reality. Kind of like, it was kind of like, like Tech this past year, long term, Tech wants to go to a modern spread offense, but they also knew they didn't have the personnel to do that last year. So what they ran last year was kind of this amalgamation that kind of met somewhere in the middle between what they want to be long term and the triple option under Paul Johnson. But Morris didn't really do that. He didn't do that. He probably knew... It would be a it'd be a rough first couple of years, but I'm sure somewhere along the way when he took that job, he was given some assurances that the athletic department knew that like it would it would be a transition offensively, and he probably was assured he had some leeway early on. So hey, why not go ahead and get the system established so when you turn the roster over, you're ready to get rolling. But I just don't think it, in anyone's wildest imagination, even though they all probably knew it would be rough the first couple of years, I don't think they thought it would be 0-16 rough. It just ended up being far worse than even the absolute worst case scenario that they could possibly conceive. So it just didn't end up working out. But look, the Arkansas deal was a bad look. You can't deny that. Context or not, it was, it was still a bad look. But I have to say that has been the exception to the rule in Chad Morris's career calling plays. Plus, and this is important to remember, when you're trying to project the impact that Morse is going to have this year at Auburn. He's not being brought in to be the head coach. That's what he failed at. Sure, he was involved in play calling and all that kind of thing, but he had more responsibility than just calling the plays. That's what he failed at. That's what he was 0-16 at. 
He's been a really, really good play caller wherever he's been. And he's being brought in to just be the offense coordinator and just to call plays. And he has been exceptionally, exceptionally good at that in his career. So, yeah, I think objectively, I actually think this is a good hire for Malzahn. And if, and I'll say this, this is a big if. This is a big if. If Malzahn can get out of his own way, I think this can end up being a good hire. Because as dynamic as Malzahn's offenses with Cam Newton and Nick Marshall were, they haven't been that way in a long time, guys. I know that Malazan, for some, he got this reputation based on obviously what they did with Cam Newton when winning the national title. He got this reputation of being this offensive mastermind, this offensive genius. I just don't know if that's been the case. Actually, it has not been the case the past five or six or so years. And normally, I, I struggle with, struggle with this when it comes to Malazan. Because normally, I'm I'm very big. I'm a, I'm a big advocate of high powered coordinators who got the head coaching job based largely on how good they were, their, their prowess designing and calling an offense or defense. I'm a big advocate of them kind of keeping on doing that. Like one, even once you get the head coaching job, still call plays, still be heavily involved. I know Kirby Smart's not, maybe not technically calling every play defensively, but we all know how heavily involved he is with our defense. And I like that. It should be that because that's what got him the job in the first place. Keep doing what you did to get you to that position. Otherwise, you're basically asking the guy to abdicate what he does best when he takes all more responsibility. But the thing with Malazan is, like I said, his offense simply has not evolved. It has not evolved. It was exotic. It was innovative about a decade ago when he first got started at the college level. We hadn't seen some of those things before. But now, it's just tired, man. It's predictable. And honestly, it's easy to defend. It is. It's easy to defend. I mean, Kirby Smart, guys, he has owned Gus Malzahn at Georgia. Sure, the Auburn game in 2017, that got out of hand, but I, I still maintain that was not about them. That was because we self-destructed in that game. Nothing they did offensively fooled us in that game. We just played like absolute garbage. We, you know, we, we missed throws offensively. We dropped passes. We had too many ridiculously dumb and very impactful penalties, missed tackles all over the place. The crowd got into it, and it snowballed on us. That's what happened. But in our four other matchups with, with Auburn, Gus Malzahn's Auburn's team since Kirby took over, Auburn's only averaging 10.5 points a game and only 256 yards a game against our defenses. Why? Well, sure, we have better players. That's true. But go back and watch any of those Auburn games. Our guys are extremely well prepared to play that offense because it's just incredibly predictable and simplistic. And I think... Chad Morris changes that for them, again, if Gus Malzahn gets out of his own way. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. But what does Morris have to work with this season? I, I, I'm really high on Morris. I think he's a good coordinator, but a lot of it also depends on what you have to work with. I think that's the bigger question. And of course, when trying to answer that question, as with most offenses, it, it, it's got to start with the most important position on the field. And that's obviously the quarterback position. Bo Nix, you know that name. 
was famously the first Auburn true freshman quarterback to start a season opener since 1946, and the results were mixed, is what I would say. The numbers were actually pretty below average for Knicks, and I don't think you would would realize that based on what you hear said about him in the mainstream media. Last year, he completed only 57% of his passes for just a little over 2,500 yards on the year, only 6.7 yards per attempt, 16 touchdowns to six interceptions. He wasn't a guy that killed them. He wasn't a debilitating option at quarterback, but he wasn't a game changer for them. He had nine games under 200 yards passing. And for me, the biggest thing when I look at Bo Nix, his completion percentage and his yards per attempt, they don't mesh. And what I mean by that is is usually you see lower completion percentage numbers with quarterbacks who play in offenses that ask them to push the ball down the field with regularity. Offenses that rely on hitting a few of those very low percentage throws. But the thing is, that's not Auburn's offense. That's not what Gus Malzahn does. Their passing game is is really screen and RPO heavy and largely of the dink and dunk variety. And typically quarterbacks in that type of offense, they post really high completion percentage numbers. Because oftentimes you see high completion percentage numbers accompanied by low yards per attempt because the higher percentage passes are typically of the shorter variety and vice versa. So to me, when you see a quarterback with high completion percentage numbers and high yards per attempt, then you know you have a dude at that position. A guy like Tua Tungavailoa, a guy like Joe Burrow. Those guys are the ones that put up high completion percentage numbers and high yards per attempt. Those are the elite guys. But Knicks was kind of odd. Low completion percentage and low yards per attempt, which I think is kind of like a, a flashing sign. I think that should create some questions about how good he really is. And that was in an offense in which he was oftentimes, guys, only asked to make one read. Malzahn's passing game is infinitely simplistic for a quarterback. That's why guys like Cam Newton, Nick Marshall can come in and make immediate impacts in year one to the degree that they did. In Cam Newton's case, winning the national title. Nick Marshall's case, getting them to the BCS title game. And more often than not, what I saw from Bo Nix when I went back and watched the tape was, and this kind of kind of meshed with what I saw from him as I was watching him during the season last year, he was kind of what Justin Fields was in spare playing time as a true freshman. You kind of a one read and take off. Now, Fields has advanced from that, but that's what Knicks was last year. And it was even more start for Knicks, I believe. Uh, that dude started every single game for Auburn last year, but according to Pro Football Focus, only took four checkdowns the entire season. So what does that mean? I think a big part of that honestly, was the structure of their passing game. They have a high volume of screens and RPOs where in most of those cases, there's not a check down built into it. So I think that's part of it. That's part of the explanation. But the other part of it is he just got flustered. He got flustered when the first read wasn't there and he defaulted to using his athleticism, which again, isn't abnormal for a true freshman, but that's what he was last year. That That's what Bo Nix was. And I'll also say he really padded his numbers against the worst competition on their schedule. His numbers were really bad against the best competition. And sure, you can say that about anyone. Anyone's numbers are likely going to take a hit as the level of competition increases. I get that. But his numbers against the best teams drop more than most. Bo Nix against uh, what I would say the six best teams that he played last year on their schedule. I got Oregon, A&M, Florida, LSU, Georgia, and Alabama. In those six games, 
Uh, he was 49% completion percentage, 5.1 yards per attempt. That is atrocious. Six touchdowns, six interceptions. All six picks he threw last year were in those six games against the best teams that he played. And he only averaged 166 yards per game. To kind of give you some context, to put that in perspective, let's take another recent SEC true freshman that we are all familiar with. Let's go with Jake Fromm. I know not apples and apples. I, I, I get it. A little bit of difference here. I think we had more talent overall in 2017 than what Auburn had last year, but still two true freshmen in the SEC. Jake Fromm against the six best teams that I think he played in 2017 as a true freshman. I'm going Notre Dame, Florida, Auburn twice that year, or uh, Alabama and Oklahoma. Well, Jake Fromm completed 58% of his passes, 7.1 yards per attempt, eight touchdowns to four picks and 175 yards a game against the six best teams that he faced as a true freshman. All of those numbers are better than what Bo Nix put up last year. And and you guys know I love Jake Fromm. I think he did a lot of really good things for us. But was Jake Fromm an elite quarterback? I think at this point, you, you'd probably say no, not, especially not, especially when he didn't have the talent around him. And Bo Nix's numbers were a good bit below what Jake put up as a true freshman. So just kind of put that into context for you in a way that you guys might understand, kind of a frame of reference you have to work from. Now, obviously... The narrative is, I mean, we all know the narrative. The narrative is that Bo Nix is a budding superstar, which uh, that may turn out to be true. Like, I'm not saying it can't be true. I just question what that narrative is actually based on. Is it based on anything tangible or is it based on feeling, emotion, hype, and the fact that it's a a good story, right? Like, you guys know the Bo Nix mythology. He's a legacy whose dad played quarterback on the Plains back in the 90s. He was a Hyped five-star prospect in recruiting. He led, and you guys can't see this, but I'm doing this in air quotes. He led a comeback victory over Oregon in the season opener last year that really kind of kicked his hype into overdrive. And even though that's ignoring the fact that he played horribly in that game until the very last drive, and I think a legit argument could be made going back and watching that game that they would have comfortably won that game if he hadn't killed them the entire game leading up to that last drive. But give him credit. He showed some fortitude there and came back, even though he played terribly in that game, and they won the game. But the fact is, from both a numbers and an eye test perspective, as far as I'm concerned, Bo Nix was average at best last year. And, and I would venture to say, like, he really wasn't very good last year. And was even at times, like, I think at times you can argue that he was actually a liability for them. But still, like, he was a freshman. He was. Let's, let's put that in context. He was a freshman. And you can say those things about a lot, if not most true freshmen. I, I think you can. And, and it wasn't all bad. It wasn't all bad for Knicks. He did have his moments where his talent flashed. You can't deny that. He played well in the second half against us when we got the lead and just tried to kind of salt the game away and get out of there with a win. And when you watch him play beyond the numbers, I mean, the numbers tell you some things. You got to go actually watch the guy play. You see some good things. He's an athletic quarterback. I wouldn't call him a dynamic runner, but he's athletic. Uh, he isn't Jake Fromm with his legs. We know that, but it, he's much more athletic than that. But he also isn't Justin Fields or Jalen Hurts either. I think he's somewhere between that. Uh, he has a good but not elite arm. He was very inconsistent with his accuracy last year, which again, that happens sometimes with true freshmen. Uh, we saw that with Jacob Eason, for example. You made some great throws. Like, let's say that uh, that throw against Tennessee at home that we thought won the game late, but obviously it didn't end up working out that way. He made those kind of throws, but he also just made some very, very inaccurate throws. And to some degree, I think like you can improve accuracy to a degree, but 
I don't know if you you improve that demonstrably over your career. At some at some point, you kind of are who you are with that. And so I'm curious to see if that was more Knicks or the offense watching. I'm like he was he was really consistent with his accuracy. So I wonder. I, I question his level of accuracy honestly coming into his sophomore year. Uh, so like, I don't know. He had, and he also has some some really bad issues with deep ball accuracy. We're familiar with that also. So yeah, I mean he he did some good things. He has some some good qualities. I just don't know if I'm sold on it. I, I, I do expect them to take a step forward this year, but what does that mean? I'm, I'm not sure it's going to be as big of a step as a lot of people expect it to be. Because again, other than the fact that he's going to be a year older and a year more experienced, he just really didn't give me all that much in the way of tangible evidence to lead me to believe that he's going to make some massive jump in 2020. Now, Chad Morris is the X factor in this. I do have a lot of respect for him as an offensive coordinator, and his offense has put up some big numbers with quarterbacks that are that are pretty similar to Knicks in terms of their physical profile, especially a guy like Taj Boyd. So there is that, but that's more about Morris than it is about Knicks. But if Knicks is going to take any sort of step forward this season, a lot of it is going to have to do with who he has around him. And he has, honestly, I think he has a good duo of rising junior wide receivers to work with. I think Seth Williams is the best of the bunch. He is a really good wide receiver with a lot of potential. He put up 830 yards and eight touchdowns on 59 receptions last season to lead the team. But honestly, if it wasn't for Knicks being as inconsistent as he was, I think Williams would have easily put up 1,000 yards in just about every offense. I'll say this. If he was on our team last year we would have been in the college football playoff. We lost to South Carolina because our wide receivers very simply could not beat press man coverage once Lawrence Cager went down in the second half. They just got beat up, and that allowed South Carolina to sell out against the run, and the rest was history. And Williams, just him alone would have solved that issue. He's a big physical guy, 6'2", 225, strong hands, not a burner, not particularly fast, but but plenty fast enough, good route runner, I don't see him as a Jerry Judy, Jamar Chase level type wideout, but I would put him in that next tier in the SEC. I'm really high on that guy. I think he's a really good receiver. And then to compliment Williams, they have Anthony Schwartz, who, in case you haven't heard, because I swear they don't mention it every single time they say his name when ESPN, but it's true. He truly has world-class speed. He's a 10 meter guy, basically a 10-flat 100-meter guy. Not wind legal, but still, it doesn't matter. That's ridiculous speed. That's blazing fast. And, and for the most part, I would say it translates to the football field. And, and that isn't always the case with some of these track guys. But I think it is the case for the most part when you talk about Anthony Schwartz. But still, even saying that, he's, he's still, even in his junior season, learning how to play that position. It's not that he he doesn't know what he's doing. He, he's certainly improved. He was very raw coming out of high school. He has improved a lot, but he's still got to work on some things. Getting in and out of breaks, is, he was very consistent in, in that regard, even last season. Understanding coverages, how to play off defensive leverage, getting off press coverage is a big thing for him. All of those things are areas that he has improved in, but those are also areas that he still needs to continue to improve, and I, but if he if he gets off press coverage, it's very dangerous to press him because if he gets off of it, you have no chance to catch him. He's leaving you in the dust. There's no doubt about that. And it will be really interesting to see both how much he improves as a junior without a real offseason, and then also what Chad Morris does with him in this new offense. I really don't think Gus Malzahn 
maximize what Schwartz brought to the table the past couple of years. He was certainly raw and had things he needed to work on, but I also don't, not sure that Malazan utilized him as well as I think he potentially could have. Now, elsewhere on the offense, I think the running game in general is a big question for Auburn. It was last year. It was the year before, and it, to me, is still a question going into 2020. They only returned one starter on the offensive line and center Nick Brahms off of was just really a subpar unit, not just last year, the past two years in reality. They ended up fourth in the SEC in rushing yards last season, but that's kind of deceptive because they were only eighth in yards per rush. What that tells me, the reason I say that's deceptive, what that tells me is they had to run the ball a lot because they didn't fully trust their true freshman quarterback, but they were middle of the pack in the league when it came to run game efficiency. They ran it a lot, but they weren't all that good at it. And the offensive line was a big part of that, as was the lack of balance with a true freshman quarterback, as was really just the lack of game-changing type talent at the running back position in general. As far as I'm concerned, there really just wasn't anyone on the roster last year for Auburn that was a difference maker at that position. And for the second consecutive season, it was Jatarvius and, and oh my God, I'm, I'm cringing just saying this because... I hated every single time someone called him this nickname, but Jatarvius Booby Whitlow. I'm so glad I don't hear them say that again. It just, it's not a big deal. It just kind of like one of those things that really just, I don't even, I can't explain it, just inexplicably rubbed me the wrong way. But he was their leading rusher the past two years with a little over 700 yards rushing each year. He battled some injuries last year, was a tough between the tackles runner, but really was just kind of a guy as far as I'm concerned, but regardless, it doesn't matter. He was still their leading rusher, even though I think he was just a guy, the leading rusher each of the past two years for Auburn, but he's gone. He's gone. He entered the transfer portal back in February, and as far as I know, he still hasn't announced a landing spot. If you've seen something on that front, hit me up on social media, at Glory UGA uh, on Twitter, and uh, let me know, but I, I, still, I looked it up. I still can't find anything about him actually finding a landing spot. So he's gone regardless. And that means without Whitlow, who do they have? They have, they have a slightly heavier version of Whitlow and DJ Williams as their leading returning rusher with an even 400 yards on the year last year, 4.8 yards per carry, two touchdowns. He's a power back more than anything, subpar speed. He's got pretty good footwork for a guy that size. I'll give him that. But his speed's lacking, and really a lot like Whitlow, to me, he's kind of just a guy. What I mean by that is he's not bad, he's serviceable, but he's just definitely not a difference maker. At least he hasn't been at this point from what I've seen out of him. Then after that, they've got two smaller, speedier backs, different type backs in Cam Martin and Sean Shivers. Shivers is the guy who famously ran over and through Xavier McKinney. Uh, of Alabama for the go-ahead touchdown in the Iron Bowl last season. He's a small dude, 5'7", 180, but man, he runs hard with that low center of gravity. He's just an explosive type guy. Martin is fine. He's about 5'10", 190-ish. A lot of Auburn fans were high on him coming into last year. They thought he might be the guy, but I wasn't seeing that. I saw nothing from him in 2018 to suggest to me that he was going to be that guy for them, and lo and behold, he wasn't. So both those guys, Shivers and Martin, they're solid, kind of like DJ Williams. Not, they're different kind of backs than Williams, but like him, they're, they're solid, serviceable guys, had roles on the team. But I just, 
don't see them as difference makers. At least they have not been to this point in their career. Now, the one guy they have at that position that could potentially end up being a difference maker is true freshman Tank Bigsby from Callaway High School here in Georgia. He's a guy I'm sure a lot of you remember from recruiting last year. We recruited him on and off with varying degrees of intensity throughout that 2020 cycle. But we opted to go with Zach Evans, kind of go all in on him for a while there uh, until obviously that very famously blew up late in the cycle. We know how that turned out. So Bigsby ends up at Auburn when he didn't feel like we were prioritizing him. And, and I get it. Good for him. It makes sense. And, and he's he's a good player, man. He really is. He's not one of those guys where I'm going to sit here and say, oh, yeah, well, you know, we didn't really want him. He's not that good of a player. You know, No, I'm not going to say that. I think Tank Bigsby is a really good player. He was a top 40 prospect in last year's class. He just barely missed out on five-star status on the 247 composite. He's got good size at six foot, about 210 pounds. He's a really fluid athlete, got great agility, good speed, runs really hard. And honestly, I would love to have him on our team. I would love to see him suit up in the red and black. And, and, and clearly, hindsight is 2020. Our staff made the best choice they could with what the information they had to work with at the time. But in retrospect, I really wish we would have prioritized Bigsby over Zach Evans from the get-go and not been as hot and cold with him. Because I think we could have gotten him. From everything I understand, there was a time where we could have gotten him, but we were kind of hedging between him and Zach Evans and ultimately put more of our focus into recruiting Zach Evans. And no, Bigsby is not quite a Zach Evans level athlete, but when you factor in the baggage with Evans, the talent gap between Bigsby and Evans to me, it was close enough to where I would take Bigsby over him when you factor in all the baggage that came with Evans, and obviously we know how that turned out. But it's tough for the coaches to kind of foresee how that was going to play out. I mean, I guess really he he had a history, so it wasn't like that was out of nowhere. I think you could have foreseen that, but I think the talent was um, – they were kind of seduced by the talent there with Zach Evans, especially when he, when he was showing interest as a guy you want to go after. But in this one particular cycle, I, I would have liked to have seen us go after a guy like Tank Bigsby especially as Kirby said at the end of the year last year, he's trying to recruit different kind of guys. He's going to change the kind of guys he's going after, make sure he's going after the right kind of dudes. I think Tank was more so that than Zach Evans was. At least that's it's pretty clear now with, with how that played out. So yeah, I would have loved to have gone after him instead of Evans, but that's not how it played out. And he's at Auburn where I would actually at this point bet on him being the guy at running back for them by midseason. He's the one that I would bet on. I, I know he doesn't have as much experience, but we've seen running backs come in before as true freshmen and make immediate impacts. And I just think he's he's the guy, he's the one dude they have, based on all the guys I've seen on their roster to this point, that I think has a chance, he has the potential, a ceiling to be more of a difference maker than any of the other guys. So it wouldn't shock me by midseason if, if he was that guy for them. So that's the Auburn offense. Um, as with our offense, there's still some questions about what exactly it's going to look like with a new offensive coordinator and Chad Morris. Does Morris have the personnel and the time now with the COVID-19 situation to implement his true offense? Or will it end up being some hybrid version between his system and Malzahn's? That remains to be seen, as it kind of does for ours, to be honest. But there are uh, there are at least a few good pieces for Morris to work with. But still, if I'm an Auburn fan, I have some serious concerns about this Auburn offense. Bo Nix is going to have to take a huge leap in what could be a very different system. And if Morris stays true to what he does, it's going to be a very different system for Knicks to run. Just to kind of illustrate that point, 
This is a stat I came across on Pick 6 Previews, which, as I told you guys last week when we did the interview with Brett, it's as good of a preseason magazine as you're going to get. This is the kind of stuff you get from them. But what Brett put in that Pick 6 Preview of Auburn, he said that all 10 of Chad Morris's college offenses have averaged 30-plus passes a game, while only one of Malzahn's has averaged 30 passes a game. Auburn has been a spread-to-run system under Malzahn. That is what they've been. I've been saying that for years. I know they put all the window dress, they spread you out, but they want to run the football downhill right at you. That's what they want to do. But that's the opposite of what Morris has been in his career as a play caller at the college level. And I'm very intrigued to see how Knicks fits into that. It, it could turn out to be a fantastic fit. But again, I just I didn't see that from Knicks last year. It does not mean that he can't do that. I just... I did not see the evidence to suggest that he is that guy right now. He's got some good wide receivers to work with. I'll give him that. But I'm just not sold that Knicks is a fit for the system, at least this year. But I'm also not sure they have much of a choice other than to just ride Bo Nix this year because that running game, man, I'm telling you, I just, I don't think, as, as highly as I think of Tank Bigsby, I still have some serious questions about their run game with four offensive line starters gone off of a unit that just wasn't any good last year. So we'll see how that plays out for Auburn this year. I'm not too confident in their offense. But let's move over to the defense now. Defensive coordinator Kevin Steele, he's going into his fifth season as the coordinator on the Plains. He's done a really nice job running that defense. He's from the Saban tree, and he's really, what I would say he's done there is he stabilized that defense. They haven't really ever fielded an elite unit under Kevin Steele, but they've always been good to very good on defense since he got there. And to kind of illustrate that point, in the five years prior to Steele's arrival, Auburn's defense was flat out below average. In those five years, they finished on average with a 77th ranked defense nationally and average giving up 410 yards per game. Well, enter Kevin Steele, and in the four years Steele has been on the job, they have averaged the 27th ranked defense and given up 343 yards a game. So that's about a 65 yard per game improvement with Steele as their coordinator versus the previous five seasons. But again, he stabilized the defense, but they still have never been elite under Steele. They've only been inside the top 15 once at number 14 in 2017. And outside of that, they've never been inside the top 25 under Steele, but they've also never finished outside the top 40. So that's exactly my point. Really good, consistent defenses that just haven't ever quite taken that next step towards elite status. And I think the reason that is, is because they aren't an elite recruiting program. Just like their defense, they recruit really well. I'm not trying to trash them. They recruit really well. They're pretty much a consistent top 10 recruiting team. Just like under Kevin Steele defensively, they've been pretty much a consistent top 30-ish level defense. But in recruiting, yeah, top 10 can pretty consistently just outside the top 10 every now and then, but they never really venture up inside the top five. Sure, they have some elite individual players like a Derek Brown or a Noah Igbenogany, but they don't have enough of them to field a truly elite defense, particularly in the secondary. I think that's where the shortcomings have come. They've been pretty good in the front seven, pretty good to really good at times in the front seven over the past four years. But the secondary, that is what the issue has been. They've like they've been 30th in rush defense, 
under Kevin Steele on average, but they've averaged a finish at number 48 nationally in pass defense. So their pass defense has been the issue. It hasn't been a train wreck, but it hasn't been up to par with what they've done against the run. So Steele has done a really good job at Auburn, but the question is, is this the year he finally fields a truly elite defense at Auburn? And I'm going to emphatically say no to that. This is an Auburn defense in 2020 that is only returning 60% of its production from last year. To put that in context, that's 77th nationally, right about middle of the pack. And what makes that even worse, though, the 40% that left comprised basically all of their best defensive players from last year. And again, this is not Georgia or Alabama that recruits at a top three level every year, year in, year out. They can't just replace departing talent like Derrick Brown, Marlon Davidson, Noah Ibnogany, and vets like Daniel Thomas as easily as a Georgia or Alabama. They just cannot. That's mean they don't have good players. They have some good, talented guys. They just don't have enough of them. But let's talk about what they do have coming back. And I want to start with the defensive line now because I think that's where they were. They were really good on the defensive line last year, as, as was well documented. But I think that unit takes a major hit with both Derrick Brown and Marlon Davis and the two dudes off that defensive front. Both those guys moving on to the NFL. Big Cat Bryant is a name that gets thrown out there based mainly on his recruiting profile. But man, in no way has that guy been an impact player or even really shown signs of being that in his first three seasons on the Plains. I mean, this dude, believe it or not, he's a senior now. I mean, it seems like just yesterday that we were recruiting him. And we missed out on him late in the cycle. He goes to Auburn. A lot of people were were all upset about that. But man, like it hadn't turned out to, to be that way, honestly. He, he has not proven to be a major miss. He's a senior now, but he's only totaled seven sacks total in his career. And that was what he was brought in to do. He was supposed to be that kind of guy, and it just has not happened. He's never even really been a full-time starter, maybe late last year, but that just hasn't been what his role has been on that team for the vast majority of his time at Auburn. He's fine. He's not garbage, but he he just has not been a difference maker. Like I thought a lot of people thought he was going to be coming out of high school and and now all of a sudden he's just gonna be that when he hasn't shown any signs of 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 really coming close to that nah I just I don't buy it man I don't buy it he's stiff he's he lacks awareness doesn't set the edge consistently well honestly doesn't really seem to know what he's doing rushing the passer like he'll try to speed rush you but once that gets shut down he doesn't seem to have much of an idea what to do or really any other moves to to fall back on so I just don't see it. Look, it's not. It's like Nick's. It's not impossible that he could break out and be a, a star this year. I just, I have not seen him show me anything to this point to suggest that that's what's going to happen this year. Nothing's impossible. Things happen. I just haven't seen it. I would actually say Derek Hall, who was a freshman last season, he came out late last year for them on the other side, and he started the last couple of games this season. I think if anyone on that D line becomes that pass rush type guy for Auburn this year, I think it's probably him and not Big Cat Bryant. But I still haven't seen enough out of Hall to declare that's exactly what he's going to be. I just think he has he sh- he showed me more as a true freshman than what I saw from Big Cat Bryant last year, to be honest with you. And then on the inside, the interior, uh, Tyrone Truesdale, he's their best returning interior defensive lineman. He, and he's a good, solid player, but let's make no mistake about it. He is not Derrick Brown. Again, just not a difference maker. And that's going to be the theme of this Auburn defense. They have some guys that are fine, that are good, solid, serviceable. They just don't have a ton of difference makers. 
But while I see their defensive line taking a step back this season, I, I have to admit, I do think their linebacking core has a chance to be really, really good. I like all three of their primary linebackers. K.J. Britt, Owen Papo, and Zacoby McClain. K.J. Britt, I think I've said this before in the podcast, as far as I am concerned, he's a slightly lesser version of Monty Rice. They're really kind of the same guy. They're both really good between the tackles. They can flash some deceptive speed, and they're good physical tacklers, but they don't play on third down. They're not three-down linebackers. You bring in somebody else, for Auburn's largely Owen Papo, sometimes McLean. For us, it's N'Kobe Dean, Quay Walker, those kind of guys, right? And Papo and McLean are faster than Britt, not quite as big, not quite as sure tacklers, not quite as physical, but they are faster, more athletic linebackers that, that kind of fit more of the new age mold of linebackers. Now, Papo is the one with the highest ceiling, in my opinion. You guys are all familiar with him. Grayson High School product. He's a plus athlete at that linebacker position. A little bit on the smaller side, but not too small. And, he, and he's still learning how to play that position, but he has a really, really high ceiling. And people don't talk as much about Zacoby McLean, but I think he's a really good player. He was the one, if you remember, had that 100-yard pick six against Alabama that just completely changed that Iron Bowl last year. If you remember the, the situation, Bama was up by one, going into score, again inside the 10-yard line. I believe it was late in the third quarter. Mac Jones gets pressured up the middle, throws the ball behind Najee Harris, right into McLean's trailing arms, and McLean takes it 100 yards back to the house, completely changes that game. I actually thought, to be honest, that McLean was better than Papo last year. Now, I do expect Papo to change that this year, but McLean is still another really good piece to that inside linebacker unit, which I think is going to be the strength of that defense. Uh, the question about the linebacker unit, if there is one, is how effective will they be when they aren't playing behind Derrick Brown, Marlon Davidson, Nick Coe, all those guys. Because those guys get a lot of pressure off of them, a lot of attention off of them. I think they're still going to be very good because I think they're talented players. But I do think that when you have guys like Brown and Davidson in front of you, that you know, that, that helps you out a lot. I mean, without those guys, it's going to complicate things for them. They're, they're going to have more offensive linemen in their face. They're going to have to fight off more blocks, which is something that they didn't have to do a ton of last year. And they just generally won't be able to run untouched the ball carrier as frequently as they did last year without Brown and Davidson eating up space and double teams. So I think that is one thing to watch for. But still, I think that that's a really good unit and certainly is going to be the strength of that defense. And that leaves us with the secondary, which was certainly, I think, their weakness last year, even with a first-round draft pick at cornerback and Noah Igbenogany. I mean, they're basically replacing their entire starting secondary. you got both safeties, Jeremiah Denson, Daniel Thomas. They've exhausted their eligibility. Those guys weren't major difference-making playmakers, but they were some pretty heady vets, played a lot of football for them back there. They were very solid, very serviceable, very stable, which is kind of what's, again, what Kevin Steele's defenses have been. I think Igbenogany at cornerback was one of the more underrated players in the entire SEC last year, as evidenced by the fact that he was selected in the first round of the NFL draft. And I don't know if a lot of people were expecting that, but he was a really good player at corner for them last year. But now, like, I honestly don't know. I don't know. I know I'm supposed to tell you on this show, but I don't know what they're going to do at cornerback this year. But I can say with confidence that whoever replaces Noah Igbenogany is just not going to be as productive as he was, at least not next year. Uh, Smoke Monday is a guy that played a fair bit for them at safety last year when Denson dealt with some injuries. But 
pardon the pun, I'm just going to have to do this. He got smoked plenty last season. I mean, almost every single game that I pulled up, there was at least one play where he was just getting embarrassed. I mean, he's tall and long, so he does have a skill set that that can work for them, but he just isn't an especially great athlete. Just to give you one example, Tyler Johnson in the bowl game last year, he, he was the wide receiver from Minnesota. He absolutely embarrassed Monday on a long touchdown in the Outback Bowl. He was matched up on a man-on-man, and uh, basically Johnson gave him one little false step to the outside like he was in a run, a little corner route, zips right back inside of the post, and it was man-on-man coverage, and it was the rest was history. I mean, he had Johnson had at least five steps on him, and he just got absolutely burned on that play. That was a big play in that game. So, and, that, and that's just one anecdote there. Those are things that you saw out of Smoke Monday last year. So I'm not sure he, how much of an answer he's going to be as the full-time starter at safety. And then at star, it's probably going to be Christian Tutt again, but he was honestly pretty bad last year. He, he got abused most of the year. A couple years back, if you remember his name from recruiting, he's a guy that you know we, we, we kind of, we were recruiting but I don't think we we never really put the full court press on him. And honestly, I'm not even sure he had a fully committable offer here. I know for a time he wanted to come here, but we basically passed on him from everything I understand. So he ends up at Auburn, and he just um, hasn't been especially great. But honestly, I'm not sure what their other options are right now at that position, unless somebody lower down the depth chart emerges. So they're probably going to have to roll with Tut, and I think that's a guy that we can certainly attack. If you think about some of the guys that we're going to have in the slot this year whether it's Dominic Blaylock, potentially D-Rob, who knows Jermaine Burton, Arian Smith. We've got a bunch of options. Karis Jackson. We've got a bunch of guys that can fit into that slot wide receiver position. And I think we have a chance to really do some damage against Tut from that position. Remember Dominic Blaylock last year, that long pass down the seam for a touchdown. One of the, the better deep balls Jake Fromm threw in his career, especially last year. So I think that's an area that we might be able to exploit if we hopefully get the opportunity to play them this year. And, and the thing is about the secondary in general – they just, again, were not good in the secondary last year. They were not good. And with all of their most talented and experienced players back there departing, I fully expect them to be even worse this year. I don't see how you can look at it any other way, especially once you factor in the absences of Derek Brown and Marlon Davidson up front that made life much easier for the secondary with how they were able to disrupt the quarterback. So, when you look at all of this in totality, when you look at this Auburn team, offense, defense, in totality, I see a team that might actually put Gus Malzahn firmly back on that hot seat that he is oh so familiar with at this point, particularly with the schedule they have this season. Their schedule is always tough if they play in the SEC West. We know that. And clearly, there's still some uncertainty with what the scheduling format is actually going to end up being and how many games they're going to play. They're going to play non-conference games. There's still some uncertainty there. But at the very least, we know they're playing Georgia, or at Georgia, at Bama, hosting A&M and LSU, who I would say are four of the top five teams in the league and probably throw Florida in there in that conversation as well. And if the SEC goes with this nine conference game plus one power five non-con game in alliance with the ACC and Big 12 that you've seen kind of thrown about the past couple of weeks. Well, they have UNC scheduled early in the season. I think it was supposed to be in week two as part of kind of this extended Chick-fil-A kickoff classic. So that could be their plus one power five non-con game. I think if they have one of those, it's going to be against UNC. And if they do end up playing North Carolina, I'm putting my money right now on the Tar Heels. I think that Sam Howell and that nasty core of wide receivers the Tar Heels have are going to scorch 
that Auburn defense if they do indeed end up playing. So I can easily see this ending up to be a five or or maybe, who knows, even a six-loss Auburn team if things start to go off the rails down the stretch. Six is, is a stretch, I, I will admit that, but I really believe this could very well easily end up being a five-loss team if they end up playing uh, a 10-game schedule with North Carolina thrown in there as well. I, I think North Carolina is going to beat them. I really believe that. Uh, their defense has been their calling card uh, if they've had one. And, and the thing is, I think they're poised to take a step back this season on that side of the ball. I, I think it, you can make an argument this might be top to bottom, the least talented unit that Steele has had to work with since he got to Auburn. I think you can make that argument. And offensively, I know everyone on the Plains is really excited about Bo Nix, and they have convinced themselves, a lot like Florida fans have with Kyle Trask, that he is some elite quarterback. And I can't, I'm not saying he can ever become that. But I just never saw that from him last year. Could he make a huge jump this year? Sure. Absolutely possible. Things like that happen. And he does have some good receivers to throw to. But again, I go back to the fact that he had very low completion percentage numbers along with low yards per attempt. That is a warning sign for me when you see those two in conjunction with one, with one another. And unless Tank Bixby comes in and is an impact type guy right away, I don't really think they have the running game to take the pressure off of Bo Nix. I don't think they do. And he's an athletic guy, but he's not all he's also the kind of guy that I think you build a running game around to try to take some pressure off him and throwing the ball down the field. So I just I look, I don't think the defense is gonna be that good. I think it's gonna be probably end up being the worst defense Steele has had in his time at Auburn and the offense. I just, I have some questions. Chad Morris is the X factor though. I will say that. I think Chad Morris is the X factor as I laid out at the beginning of the show. If he comes in and works his magic, like, like he has pretty much everywhere he's been, sans Arkansas, and things click for Knicks in that new offense, then it might be a different story. But I, I just don't know that I'm willing to bet on that right now. If Auburn's going to be more than, honestly, if they're going to be more than a, a three or four loss team, I think Bo Nix has to be Superman. I really do. I think he has to be Superman for them to have a chance to compete for the SEC West title. And I just, I don't, and I don't see that happening this year. I think he'll he'll probably be improved. I just don't think he's going to be at Superman level. I, I I don't think he's going to be. And again, I, unless he plays like that, I just don't see how this Auburn team is really going to be a major contender in the SEC in 2020. I still think this is a, a, a three loss team at best. I, I'll say that right now. I think at best this is a three loss team. So I'm sure a lot of you probably think I'm crazy saying all that because Auburn is a well-known SEC program. Bo Nix is the hype beast. So they get a lot of preseason love, but I just, I don't see it with Auburn in 2020. So that's it for me today here, guys, on the Glory UJ podcast. I really hope you guys enjoyed the show. I did my best. I know that we, uh, we're all in desperate need of some hardcore football talk. So I'm doing my best, guys, to try to give you as much of that as I possibly can as we await news and word on what's actually going to happen with this 2020 season. I'm still holding out hope. And as long as there's hope, I'm going to keep churning out content like this for you guys. Curtis will be back with me later on this week. Excited to have him back on here. And we will be doing our July mailbag. Yes, you heard me correctly. We have come to the end of another offseason month. We're we're getting closer, guys. I don't know when the season will start, but if it's going to start, we're getting closer every single day. So we've already had a number of questions sent in for the mailbag. If you have some questions and haven't sent them in yet, you still got plenty of time to do that. We're going to 
probably going to be recording sometime on Thursday. So hit us up on Twitter at Glory underscore UGA. You can just tweet it at us. You can send me a DM. You can also email us if that's easier for you. If you don't need the social media thing, our email address is GloryUJPodcast at gmail.com. Easy enough. So yeah, I uh, look forward to that. And we I really appreciate you guys tuning in and listening to the show here today and giving us your support. It is greatly, greatly appreciated. But I'm Tyler, and as always, go dogs. <laughs>